you know, in the span of a couple of minutes, uh, we get clearance to fire. And then between the two aircraft, we um, we do some crosstalk to make sure, you know, we're not shooting the same thing. And, you know, they decide that they're going to take on the rocket launchers. We'll take the van. There was an F-16 on station, and he spotted some of the people that were involved in this like running away and they were hiding under the bleachers and so um, the F-16 did a remote designation underneath the bleachers for us to put a Hellfire missile in there and take care of those guys. Hey, welcome to another episode of The Spear, a podcast by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and The Spear is our platform to explore the combat experience. Each episode includes a single one-on-one interview with a guest who walks us through a particular event and their role in it. A battle, a firefight, a mission. It's a first-person account of combat. This episode is our second from the Army Aviation community, and in it you'll hear my conversation with Dan McClinton, a retired Chief Warrant Officer 4 and former Apache pilot. He told me about two missions from a 2007 deployment to Iraq, one in which everything largely went smoothly, and another in which they didn't go so smoothly. Together, the two stories have some pretty powerful lessons about how military units learn, how they improve, and how that improvement really requires service members and leaders to be honest and sometimes self-critical. Before we hear those stories, just a couple quick things. First, if you're enjoying The Spear, be sure you're subscribed to the podcast, and we'd love it if you'd take a few seconds and give us a rating or leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And second, as always, what you're about to hear are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Dan McClinton. All right, I want to welcome uh, my guest for this episode of The Spear, uh, and that is Dan McClinton. Dan, thanks for taking some time to uh, to uh, share some stories with us. No problem. Glad to help. Uh, so give me a little bit of background uh, before we kind of get into the story. Uh, what was your job in the Army um, and, and, and when, you know, what we're going to hear about, when did this all take place? Sure. I was a, um, well, I was in the Army for 24 years. I was a warrant officer aviator. Um, the particular time that we're going to discuss here, I was the battalion tactical operations officer for the 1st Battalion 227th Aviation. Uh, we were with the 1st Cav Division, and we were stationed at Camp Taji, Iraq. We arrived in theater in around November of 2006, and we were there for 15 months. Okay. So is that the, is that battalion, uh, the first cab divisions, organic aviation assets? Right. Um, we were one at that time, we were one of two attack battalions in the, in the brigade. Okay. So attack battalions, what does that mean? What kind of aircraft did you have? Uh, we had H 64 D Apache longbow helicopters. There were 24 in each battalion. Okay. So, um, I guess I'm going to kind of sidetrack us for a minute. And can you just talk a little bit about what's the role of, um, of Apaches in, in a division like that? Well, traditionally, the role of an Apache battalion was to conduct deep attacks or interdiction against, you know, uh, force on force, heavy 
you know, Russians coming through the fold of gap kind of thing. But, uh, after, um, nine 11, it became more a, uh, we're doing close air support for lack of a better term or in reconnaissance missions, uh, whatever the troops on the ground needed actually. Okay. Can you, can you talk a little bit about just briefly, maybe what, um, uh, what an Apache is armed with? Sure. We get, uh, usually flew with, uh, two 19 shot rocket pods, could carry up to four Hellfire, or excuse me, eight Hellfire missiles. And at the time we were deployed, um, we had an auxiliary fuel cell in in on the aircraft, so it limited our 30-millimeter cannon rounds to 300 rounds. Okay, so you've got rockets, missiles, and, and the 30-millimeter cannon on board, typically. Yeah, correct. Okay, so you get into country, you said, uh, late 2006, is that right? Right. So I think, uh, as I understand it, we might talk a little bit about two stories here, but the first one was uh, in June 2007. You've been in country six, seven months, I think. Can you kind of talk us through what happened? Right. Um, Just to start you off, um, every day uh, we're responsible for having a a team of two Apaches up in the air 24 hours a day, weather permitting. So this broke out into having... uh, like a team up for four hours a day and they'd switch every four hours. So I was, uh, as part of a two aircraft team, we were up doing, uh, actually route reconnaissance for a, uh, route clearance team. Um, and we're working just West of camp Taji, which is about, uh, say about 10, 15 miles North of Baghdad. Okay. And, and what's the, Sorry to interrupt, but so what's sure. the terrain like? If you can kind of explain for listeners that haven't uh, haven't been to Iraq or certainly haven't been to that part of Iraq. Well, it's pretty flat. Um, it's not like most people would uh, imagine. It's well west of Taji. It was kind of starting into the desert, uh, but more around Baghdad, there were like um, uh, palm palm trees, olive groves. Okay, so on this day, you're up. Um, I guess providing overwatch really over this route clearance patrol. What time of day is it? It's night. Uh, uh, it's it's full on night, and uh, we'd gotten a weather brief that actually a dust storm was going to come in later that night. So that was probably in the back of our minds the whole time we were up, because um, as you might know, out in the desert, the weather can change pretty quickly. Um, so. We're trying to keep an eye on the weather and do our job all at the same time. So we're out and out west of Taju, where we're at, it's it's pretty dark out there. There's not a whole lot of cultural lighting. So it's pretty much just this uh, route reconnaissance team and us out here in the dark uh, looking for IEDs, basically. So for those of us who have never been up in an Apache, um, is it... Does it, how much of a difference does it make if you're flying a mission like this at night versus daytime? Well, uh, tactically, we would operate differently at night because uh, obviously, unless you have night vision devices, you're not going to see us. At night, actually, it's a lot easier with all the tools we have in an AH-64 to do our job. So it's it's we have an advantage at night, and so we're a little more comfortable at night. 
Okay. So you're up, it's dark, you're, you're, you're fine over this route clearance patrol. Then what happens? Well, our, um, when you have a team, you have all these tasks that we're required to do. Like, like there's probably four or five radios that we're monitoring at any one time. So I was gun two, and uh, part of my job was to keep uh, in contact with our battalion talk. Well, the battle captain calls me on the Fox mic and uh, relays a target for us in Baghdad that's been uh, found by a J-Lens. So for people who don't know, a J-Lens is uh, basically an observation balloon that has FLIR cameras. It's got, you know, TV cameras, that sort of thing. And, and we would use these around Baghdad to uh, surveil the areas around uh, combat outposts or FOBs. So one of the ones down by the green zone, which is down in downtown Baghdad, it had uh, spotted some individuals in a van who set out about 10 rocket launchers pointed at the green zone, which is where all the, our headquarters was at and the seat of the Iraqi government was at. So they basically gave us the target, a 10 digit grid to the target and told us, uh, you know, basically gave us a change of mission to go take care of this uh, situation. How far away from, from where you were flying then was it? Uh, it's probably about a 15-minute time of flight going as fast as we could fly, which is probably about 110, 120 knots, which is around about 130 miles an hour, something like that. Okay. So you get the call and to to go, what, I, what, 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 is the, what is the new mission? Is it to, to first just get eyes on this target and then it's going to develop from there? Or, or what are your orders? Well, basically... Um, because we had decision makers from the landowners, I, I forget what brigade it was, but the, the ground brigade, the maneuver brigade uh, that owned that land, uh, their decision makers were looking at those individuals. And as soon as we confirmed what they were seeing, they were going to clear us to fire. So the beauty of the 10 digit grid that that I was given over the radio and then my front seater um, name, his name was Brian Carboni. He, um, he sent that digitally to the other aircraft in the flight and uh, we headed that way. So because we have that location in the aircraft, you can slave the sites on the aircraft to that location. So as soon as we're close enough to see it on our systems, uh, we can start IDing the target. So then, so you, so you head that direction. You said it's about 15 minutes of flight time. Uh, and what happens when you get there? Well, um, in route, we also got information that there was a special operations uh, mission going on. It was kind of in our way. So we had to deconflict from that. And, uh, and I don't know if you've ever heard of Sodder City, but that was sort of in our way too. So we had to kind of weave our way through all these uh, different things that were going on. Um, cause at the time Sauter city is a no-go zone on the ground, but I imagine that also means that you can't fly over it. I could fly over it if I had, uh, a mission in there, but generally our brigade did not want us flying over it if we didn't have to. So, so we were trying to, uh, basically thread the needle and get past all these things, different things that are going on. Um, 
And that's sort of the beauty of the Apache or the longbow because I've got a moving map display and we can put certain things in there that allow us to see the situation. So um, it's nice tools to have. And when I sit down and think about like some of the aircraft I'd flown before that, like, I don't know how we would have done some of the stuff that we did, just not having the situational awareness. Um, <laughs> but, you know, uh, we got down there and it was sure enough, uh, as soon as we slaved the, the sites to the target, there they were just, just like it was described. So, uh, so what does that mean to slave the sites to the target? There's some, um, switches on the flight controls. Uh, when we say slave the site to the target, there's an actual button. It's called slave. And if you make a uh, target in the aircraft weapon system, the primary target, you hit the slave button, it will go to, to the grid coordinate of, it will train the site on that grid coordinate. So um, we slave the site to the target and you know, there were the rocket launchers. There's a there's the van just as described. So uh, the guys up in front who was uh, at that time, it was my commander and CW4 um, Kevin Smith was the guy flying the aircraft. They're talking to the brigade on the ground. Um, they say, hey, we're seeing what you're describing. Do we have clearance of fires? And there's a whole back and forth, you know, to make sure we're all talking about the same thing, because obviously we don't want to shoot the wrong thing. Sure. And, um, you know, in the span of a couple of minutes, uh, we get clearance to fire. And then between the two aircraft, we, um, we do some crosstalk to make sure, you know, we're not shooting the same thing. And, you know, they decide that they're going to take on the rocket launchers. We'll take the van. Um, and we just do some tactical things about how we're going to set up um, our firing patterns and things like that. And then we went in there and pretty much engaged. And, and then it's sort of a fluid situation because, uh, as you might imagine, you know, things happen once start uh, bullets start flying around. Um, uh, in this particular case, like when some of the rounds, we're trying to destroy the rocket launchers and it hits the rocket, some, some of the rockets started going off. And I remember telling uh, flight lead because um, there's sort of a phenomenon that we noticed uh, in my job in the battalion. I had to look at all the gun camera tape, um, you know, so, so we could AAR it for the crews. And uh, it's kind of like human nature that once you start an engagement, like we tend to circle the target. And as time went on, the circle got tighter and tighter. We kind of called it swirling around the drain because people would just like gravitate towards whatever you were looking at. And you'd get closer and closer if you didn't, if you didn't pay attention to what you were doing and, and lead in this particular case got closer and closer to these rockets and they started going off. And I remember uh, calling him on the radio saying, Hey, they're going off right underneath you. And he like, Oh, I got to get out of here. Um, so we managed all of that. And um, we ended up, there was an F 16 on station and he spotted some of the people that were involved in this, like running away and they were hiding under the bleachers. And so, um, the F 16 did a remote designation underneath the bleachers for us to put a hellfire missile in there and take care of those guys. 
Uh, so can I can I just jump in here and because this is this is pretty it's pretty phenomenal really um, that at this point you're flying how far off the ground? We're probably uh, 500 feet. Okay, and the F-16 is is well, he's probably above 10,000. I I don't really know you know what altitude he is. I know the coordination altitude is is uh, and he's above that, but. Okay, so he's so he's up there, and yeah. and through his systems gets eyes on uh, these targets, and is able with with his systems to mark them for you to to fire on. That's correct. Okay, that's some pre- pretty in, uh, impressive. I think air to air coordination. Well, you know, and it's and it's it's interesting that it happened because historically we hadn't had a really um, we kind of worked separate from one another, and. Uh, I won't take credit for this, but my battalion, um, after OIF two, when we were over there in 2004, we saw the opportunity, uh, to do some training with the air force and try and, uh, try and take advantage of everybody's assets on the battlefield because we kind of knew we were going back to Iraq or someplace again. So we kind of saw the first time we were over there that we weren't, having some a whole lot of synergy so we saw saw an opportunity to maybe leverage their assets and our assets and it just so happened to come together in that particular case which is pretty cool so now the rockets you've you've destroyed and and these guys that were setting them up you've taken the guys out presumably you've hit the vehicle as well right um we hit the van with another hellfire. Uh, I think initially we shot it with the 30, but to just make sure it was totally done. Once we did the initial engagement, we went out and uh, set up and did a missile shot on it just to make sure it was totally gone. And it was, it was burning pretty good and exploding. So I'm pretty sure there were additional rockets in there. They probably had, they probably meant to shoot more than just the 10 that they had set up but so you know from start to finish you you're you're out there providing overwatch i guess above this route clearance patrol you get a call to change mission um you do that you told there's a special operations mission going on so you've got to deconflict with them uh you get on station and you take out all the targets that you're meant to take out in part by cooperating really working together with um this air force fixed wing aircraft way up high in the sky all in all it sounds like a really really successful mission is that how you is that how you saw it when you went back and you and you did your aar well you know it's funny because i don't know about anybody else but we tend you know the guys that i worked with we tend to be self-critical and uh yeah we got the job done but it tended to to sort of focus on what could I have done better, the things that weren't right, uh, so we could do it even better in the future. Sure. So I do think, though, that um, you know anybody who has deployed has has experienced. I think um, you know what it's like when you get you get in country. Um, it takes some time. To, you know it takes some time to kind of settle in and get into a routine and, and really start um, optimizing your operations and, and seeing things go well. I imagine that the fact that this is six or seven months into your deployment 
is is partly why i mean you you know you've been on you know many many missions by this point uh i think there was one that you mentioned that you might want to tell us about that uh, there was much earlier in your in your deployment where maybe things didn't go as smoothly right um um we took over from we finally took the reins from the unit we were replacing in like january uh so we did our left seat right seat and uh, in january we took full control of everything that was going on so this is maybe a month and a half after we're doing everything ourselves and uh, i was on a team we were taking off in the afternoon and we were scheduled to go down to baghdad to support some cordon and search or you know some some operations that were going on with some ground units down actually by solder city so we were kind of delayed because the weather was uh kind of iffy that day and but our sop we'd go out pre-flight the aircraft like we were going to fly even though the weather was bad and then just make the decision after we start the engines and taxi out to the runway, if we can't fly, okay, we're not flying today, but we're going to go right up to that point. So the weather was looking pretty crappy and uh, we taxied out to the runway and then, you know, we're going through all our checks and all this stuff. And as the minutes tick by, the weather just keeps getting better and better. And so I guess we're going to go fly. So, um, we are just taking off and, and the, uh, the talk calls us on the radio and said, there's a troops in contact. And, uh, for us, the number one priority, if I was doing a mission, if I got a call that said troops in contact, I would drop everything we were doing and we would head to that place as fast as we could get there. Cause that meant our guys on the ground were needed help from us that they were in contact with the enemy and they, they requested, uh, attack helicopters. So <clears throat> my front seater, we hadn't even cleared the fence and there's a whole, um, because we have aircraft self-protection equipment. And, uh, when we take off, we have to turn on our video recorder and all this other stuff. Um, so there's a litany of things you got to go through when you take off to get the aircraft ready for battle, like arm the weapon systems and all these things. And we were in such a hurry. He was up there plugging in the, uh, the location and, uh, around Baghdad, they had all the, uh, the battle space carved up into zones and these zones had numbers associated with them. And this was my second time to fly in the Baghdad area. And, when they gave us the zone, I didn't even recognize the zone. And it turns out the reason I didn't recognize it, it was because it was in the traffic pattern in the airfield. And we never like had troops in contact in that area. Um, so we were like, we had passed that area headed, assuming that the battle was in Baghdad. And then he plugged in the, the grid coordinate and we had to turn around and go back to it. And what had happened was, um, a unit from 17 Cav, also from 1st Cav Division, they they were using boats to go up and down the Tigris to interdict um, smuggling of weapons. And they would had come under uh, a crossfire in the river and run aground on this island, and they were being shot at from both sides of the river, and they were asking for help. And just... So the guys on the ground are... They're- they're essentially stuck on this island, taking fire from both sides. Right. And they had wounded and, um, 
you could hear them on the radio. You could hear the rounds in the background. They told us they were running out of ammunition. So it's, it's like a, it's serious. It's like really bad. And, um, we're going, like I said, we flew past it. We weren't that far past it, but I came back and, uh, we flew over the Island. We couldn't see them initially. And this, uh, one of the guys stood up and, uh, and maybe I didn't understand right away just how, you know, intense the fire was because I was pretty low when I came back and it was daylight, like I said. Uh, and when I mean pretty low, I was probably like 50 feet off the ground. So, mm-hmm. so this guy, um, stands up and he's waving at me and I, I wave him back you know, like get, get down, you know, with my hand, assuming that he could see me, uh, that we saw where they were at. And, um, uh, we took up an orbit and, um, we passed over this little village right next to the river, which is where they were taking some of the fire from. I didn't know that at the time, but, um, uh, the streets were full of people when we passed over it. And then when we turned to go over it again, the streets were now empty. Uh, we found out later from talking to the guys that were on the Island, um, that, um, you know, all the mosques have loudspeaker systems. So there was a guy on the loudspeaker system in the mosque in that village telling, uh, telling the people to grab their weapons and go kill the infidels. So, um, I, and this usually, we notice this, uh, a lot, uh, that people, the bad guys usually take off when we get there because they, they know what we can do. So, it didn't necessarily surprise me that when we turned outbound that everybody was gone. Um, so we took up an orbit and where I was, what I was talking about, how things, uh, how we got better at all this, our radio talk and what frequencies we were on, even though we briefed it all. And I think part of this had to do with, uh, just how fast we weren't even in, you know, we weren't even flying when we got the mission and it was just like, go. And so rarely does that, did that ever happen? Um, but it took us a good, you know, we were on station, you know, five minutes, 10 minutes before we got really everything settled between the two aircraft on who was doing what. And, um, I think I'd already gone down there and put down suppressive fire because the guys on the Island were still worried naturally about, uh, being overrun because, uh, they had wounded and they're running out of ammo. So I just went down there cause there's a lot of reeds and stuff and we weren't sure if there's people, um, still hiding in there. So we just put down some suppressive fire to make sure, you know, if there was anybody there, they'd keep their heads down. Uh, we called for the medevac or I had my wingman call for medevac at the same time. We got another call because I was up one sevens, uh, command push, uh, that some boats that were up the river that were trying to come down to help these guys. Now they were being shot at. And so I didn't want to leave the people on the Island. So we're trying to figure out how we're going to help both people. I'm calling, uh, I'm having my wingman call back to our battalion. Um, and just, you know, we were on station for that thing, like four hours that day, they finally got the guys off the Island, uh, that 
that engagement was followed by a cordon and search. So we stayed there for the start of that because uh, they rolled out, the quick reaction force rolled out and started doing a house to house, trying to find the people. Obviously they were shooting the, uh, shooting at the guys on, in the boats. So we were supporting that. And uh, when we AARed it all, you know, my, my front seater forgot to turn on the video. Um, <laughs> uh, like I said, we were having me and my wingman. There were times we couldn't talk to each other because he was trying to talk to back to battalion or he was trying to talk to brigade or it was just, and I think, you know, like I said, there's no, um, substitute for experience. And, uh, so I guess like when you, when you tell this story, when you tell both of these stories, the first one you talked about from June, um, even the way you tell it is just, it seems very smooth. It's just, it seems like everything sort of worked and you ran into obstacles. Uh, oh, there's a special operations mission going on the ground. We need to deconflict. So you deconflicted and you continued mission. Um, you get there and, you know, when the rockets started going off uh, and you realized that the other aircraft was getting too close to it, you let them know they backed off and you continued mission. Um, you know, you, you coordinated with this. Air Force, uh, F-16, up above, everything co- sort of went well. And the outcome of this, the second one you told us, which actually happened earlier, I guess, in February, um, the outcome was still successful, right? You you supported the guys. They were able to be evacuated. Um, every, the outcome was still good, but it just seems like it didn't go smoothly, um, if, if, if that makes sense. And, and I wonder if you have any, you know, have any thoughts about, is that just a function of, you know, time spent in country doing this stuff, developing SOPs, um, you know, kind of learn, like learning what it's like to fly with these guys and getting experience working together. So you start to kind of understand, um, you know, uh, the people that you're flying with. What What is it that, that contributed to this? Uh, the one in February, you know, not going very smoothly, but then the one in June going about as smoothly as you could hope for. A part of it, I think we had the SOPs in place. I think part of it, you know, we had two experienced guys, me and the PIC, and that's the pilot in command in the, in the second aircraft had been over there before. Uh, but the two front seaters were new and one of them had just been signed off uh, RL1. And that means uh, when you're going through training as a pilot, that means you're ready to be, to fly missions. Um so he was, he was new. This was like one of the first times he'd ever been in combat. And now they're like, Hey, there's guys, you know, being shot at and there's people, you know, yelling on the radio for help. You know, it's pretty, pretty intense situation. And that's the first time he's ever been in battle. Uh, that's not the way it usually goes. I know I was flying the first time I was in Iraq, I flew, uh, I don't know, like 10, 15 missions before I actually ended up in a, you know, like a shooting type situation, you know, where people are shooting at one another's. And I don't know how you replicate that. I know that, and I know this is heresy to talk about the Air Force, you know, about, but uh, and I know back during Vietnam that the, uh, the Air Force did a study and they said, you know, if you survive the first 10 missions, the odds were very good that the person was going to survive his whole, whole tour, which was like a hundred missions. 
So that's why they, uh, they started that exercise called Red Flag out in Nevada, because they're trying to duplicate the first 10 missions of, com- of combat. Um, how do we do that in the army? Uh, I'm, you know, units try their best because, but because I, it, this is my opinion, obviously, um, we, ha- because of our dwell time. And if you're getting replacements into the unit, the amount of flight hours you have available to you and instructor pilots and things like that, it kind of works against the kind of training that new guys need to do to, to get to the point where they're a little more comfortable just jumping in the pool. Um, like I said, you know, like we said, we all got the job done, but it wasn't as smooth as it could have been. You know, uh, nobody, nobody died. Nobody, you know, crashed an aircraft. Nobody, uh, we saved the good guys, all that stuff. But, uh, when you go back and look at it, it could have been a lot, it could have been done a lot better. So I want to jump in because you, you, what you just said, when you go back and look at it, and you've mentioned several times um, the AAR, the after action reviews that you did. And, you know, we, we like to think of the Army as a learning organization. And part of that process is the AAR. How much of that contributed, do you think, to, uh, you know, developing the ability to go from, you know, things, uh, you know, thankfully working out, but not working very smoothly to, a really successful and a pretty complicated mission just a few months later. Is, is the AAR a big part of that? Oh yeah, I would say so. Like, and I don't know if people realize this or not, but like every time we fly as a crew or if you're in a team, like in this particular case, there's four pilots. We all sit down at a table and talk about the mission and talk about what went well and what went bad and how we can make things better. And that's every single time. Even back in the United States, it may not be a long conversation, but we all have conversations and the goal is to try and make yourself better every time you go out and fly. Um, And I would say that was a big part in how people got from, and I'm not saying it was a total train wreck, but, you know, um, I'm not proud. I mean, I'm proud of the job we did. I'm not proud of like, the the way my cockpit was run i was the pilot in command of that aircraft so i'm the person responsible you know for what's going on there and there if my front seater didn't turn on the video camera it's my fault um so you know that's something i learned so yeah uh, aars they're a big big part of like getting better like doing things better every time we go out well, Dan, thanks very much. Um, this has been it's been fascinating for me. We um, we don't get very many opportunities to record. Um, you know, we're fifteen twenty episodes into this podcast series, the Spear, and they're typically with ground force soldiers, and um, and every one of those ground force soldiers has had the experience of being on the ground and being comforted by you know hearing hearing the Apaches up above them. Um, so it's, 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 it's fantastic to be able to kind of get that perspective and also, um, to hear some stories from the aviation community that I think also have some lessons that are applicable well beyond that. When you talk about the AARs, when you talk about developing, um, 
you know, sort of um, an element of cohesion and understanding how the people you're working with work. So uh, this has been fantastic. So thank you very much. Oh, no problem. And I just want people to know the number one reason we were up there and the number one reason we did what we were doing was for those guys on the ground. And that's, that's what we thought about. That's what we talked about every day before we went up on a mission. I know the guys on the ground uh, appreciate that. So thank you, Dan. Oh, no problem. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening to The Spear. Before you go, remember to be sure to follow MWI on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. It's a great way to stay up to date on what we're doing so you don't miss any of the new articles, podcasts, and research we're publishing every day. Thanks again for listening.